Welcome to the latest episode of Global Class, a podcast where we explore the international expansion stories of the world's fastest growing companies and the career journeys of their globally minded leaders. My name is Aaron McDaniel, and I'm here with my co-host, Klaus V. Thanks, Aaron, and welcome to our listeners. Today, we're super excited to welcome Gable Engel to the show. Gable is the CEO and co-founder of Rocket Chat, a fast-growing Brazilian enterprise messaging platform born through open source. Previously, he co-founded Connecti, FTSYS, Intelliman, and worked in product at Vodafone. Join us as we discuss how to build and engage a global team and maintain consistent core values, among other topics. Gabriel, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me here. I love the opportunity to talk about something that I love so much, not just Rocket Chat, but all the topic of international companies, something very close to heart. For our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Rocket Chat, why don't you describe a little bit more about the business and, and maybe in particular why it's a particularly important solution you're providing nowadays with virtual work? Rocket Chat, I think the fastest way to describe it would be like your open source version of Slack or Microsoft Teams if they had a child with Zendesk or another omni-channel tool. Rocket Chat not only does digital workspace like this collaboration, sharing files, video conferencing and channels, but also connects to your the company's presence on Facebook or WhatsApp or WeChat or, or Telegram. And then so you can talk at the same time you, to your colleagues, you can talk to your customers, you can give like support and you can even even talk to partners using federation protocol and the big difference is it's an open source software you have total access not just the code base but to the database you can host anywhere you can customize white label and then a lot of companies and governments use it to be in charge and get ownership of their communication right and, and if they really care about privacy that's why I have customers like the US Navy the Air Force all the way to like the nuclear power plants of Japan <laughs> and they, they don't want anyone to be reading or have any chance to be reading what you're talking about, right? So not just a product, but a customizable platform. Yes, very. Like I think open source gives you the power of doing anything you want. And the, the license is quite liberating as well. We use MIT license. So we have team people create all different kinds of products on top of Rocket Chat. That's awesome. And, and you had mentioned like Japan and other countries, like what does what your guys' global footprint look like? Do you have users all over the world right now? Yeah, all over. I think it's, well, the user base, it's in every single country. Like we monitor servers when they apply, they connect to our marketplace, they get their IPs and we got IPs from like virtually every every country in the world. The paying customers, like people who are not just using the free version, but become like paying customers. I think there's about like, uh, maybe 40 countries or something like this. And it's very dispersed, like economically as well. Like US is 40% of the revenue then uh, Asia, 30%, Europe, uh, Asia in the emerging markets, uh, Europe is about 20 and Brazil, where, where I am, South America, is, is under 10%. What about your team? So what how spread out is, is your team? Obviously, very spread out customer base. What, what about your uh, your rocket chat team? Almost uh, uh, as spread as the customer base. You can talk a little bit about the story and how we, we got to this later, but we, we have about have people from 32 different countries right now. The team is is very, yeah, and, and every continent, which I think is, is, is so cool. I have now some guys in Africa, New Zealand, like Asia, like every, every it's literally everywhere. 
I actually took the liberty of looking up LinkedIn and then search for RocketChat and saw the VP of marketing in Finland, VP of operation DC, head of cybersecurity in Sweden, and then head of partnerships yeah. in Portugal. So you definitely you definitely live uh, on virtual work also when you build up your operation and your team. So can you talk a bit more about how you find these talents around the world? Because that's not that's not easy, right? Is it related to your product, the community you're building? So how do you build this global organization? Yeah, I, I think it was very interesting the, the point that you made because one thing is sometimes you, if you call you you call yourself an international company, but all your core executive team is one place, and then you have just like sales representatives distributed, right? That's somehow different than what you just seen that you have our executive team being distributed as well. So, and it's a lot harder to do, obviously, because we are looking for different kind of talents and produce it. The way we've done this, like to find this different kind of talent, we sometimes work with headhunters that they help us connect the, the right talent, but it helps a lot that as the product becomes more well-known and our presence more well-known, it gets easier to attract talent and because we can give some visibility for people when they're working rocket chat and you attract people who want to work in international companies. You, you end up showing a set of core values about the company that attracts people who love this international side of, of rocket chat. We've seen people who left, for instance, this guy, our VP of uh, marketing in Finland. One of the reasons we were able to attract him from his previous job was this global play that we, we were able to offer. And he, he really appreciated working on something that would have a global impact. This is really interesting. And, and I, I want to call out a few things because as we're developing this concept of the global class company, I think there are a few things that you mentioned that really fit into what we see as the company that's going to be successful in the future. And, and so one of those is the view on talent. So it's not about clusters of employees, like you're saying, either all yeah. in one headquarters in Brazil or in other countries, but it's finding the talent where they are and also allowing them to then actually be a connector into that market. And so how, how have you used the fact that you have executives in multiple countries and employees in multiple countries to then actually use that as, as a way to get in and build a customer base in those markets. That's a very valid point. And one thing that we'll talk about, like being able to reach the talent that I think is relevant as well. The, the more we have this remote working force in the world, the less than the geography becomes an important factor when people are choosing who to work for. If something goes down in value when you're talking like trying to choose the company, other things needs to go up. So people are going to be looking more about the environment, the culture, the impact that they are able to have. So there's a lot of more alignment on the teams around why, about the why, why they're working together, what their goals, what their values. Then if people have to choose one of the companies in their area, right? And then they have like a limited offer and then you're going to have to work for one of them and they pick the best. But now that's not the case. They're going to, they, they can really look at something that they align on the values and on the why of the company exists. For us, it's almost like a, this virtual circle because because we started as an open source, there's a very strong value for openness, for sharing, for transparency, like all the things that come with open source software. We attracted people to the project that share the same values. And then once they were working on the projects and we're, we're happy enough to get our seed rounds, we were like, okay, let's hire some of those people. They're already working on the project for free. They're putting like hours, tens of hours a week 
just out of love and passion for the, the mission and the vision. Then we start hiring those people. Obviously, when we start to have the guys in the U.S., when there were like conferences happening in the U.S. and stuff like you already have someone in your team that is passionate about you, that you are, you're sure that if they go to event, they're going to be represent you and really be the, the hero for the company. The same thing that then happened in, in Germany, then they hire someone from the community to work with us. And so the, let's say the values attracted the people and then we were able to get the funding. We kept those people and now they reinforce the value that keeps attracting more people like us in different areas. And it has been a lot, very useful to have the distributed team when the customers then are so distributed and we want to understand what's happening in each customer there's always someone on that time zone that understand that culture that is going to be closed that can talk to the customer so it gives you this taste that is an international product and company but i still have a feeling that i'm talking to someone close if i want to and that's also powerful you as a business it seems like you being super close to community is a critical and key for the organization right and i think yes. one there's one thing that sparked my curiosity a bit more last time we had a chat with you was you talked about having the community integrated within the company and talked about every employee should talk to the community. Can you talk yes. a bit more about that, how it's integrated within the company and the way that you engage as employees with obviously the community at Rocket Chat? Yeah, it, it was a lot easier on the beginning when the company on the beginning is more right. mainly engineers doing the work in the open on, on GitHub. So everybody's like interacting with the features and in the forums. We also made a very, at the time, controversial decision that I, I was the one pushing for that I said, like, we should not have our own private server for Rocket Chat. Our server where the company works needs to be the same server, like, or with all the same channels where the community is. There's no boundary. I know a lot of companies, they, they might have like a community chat system and then they have their private one for the internal things. Right. And I thought, like, well, if we are on our own thing, like, we, we're going to start creating this uh, distance from the community. So the server that we work have uh, half a million people registered on the company server because that's where we talk to customers, partners, community, everybody there. But as, as the company started to grow, obviously not only engineers, we had to then make a little bit more of an effort to get some other, other areas of the company still in touch community. So we have things like we invite people to participate from the community to participate on our weekly meeting, the all hands. So they can tell the story. They can sometimes tell like what they're using Rocket Chat for, give feedback. We used to do more, went for a bit that it was too, it didn't do as well as much, but we, we are doing again now a recurring open mic for the community where I, uh, myself, the, the VP of product, our CDO, just do a webinar with no specific a script other than let's hear what the community will tell about what things we're thinking. Trying to be intentional and in creating venues where the conversation happens. It's almost like you have a, your one-on-one with your team. So, and then sometimes you don't you don't have a script. You just want to sit there for some time and, and then see what are the topics that comes. So that's what you want to have with the community. But also we are make sure that everybody's present on, on GitHub, on, on, the, on our forum, and then the fact that we have the same chat system as the community. So anyone on the community can look at my name on, on Rocket Chat and then send me a message. And then like, there's no filter. That's uh, a lot of times I talk to people just like that. That's super cool. And, and so I, I guess the early days of making that decision, right? How has that helped you develop the product today? Because obviously in 
engaging with the community, you get a lot of feedback, right? Yeah. Sort of what trajectory has that put you on and what are some of the key learnings from those early days that helped you build a product that found, obviously found product market? Yeah. The rocket jet itself would not exist if it wasn't for the community. We, we built the first version for a customer and then I decided to put it open source because it wasn't even the main product it was kind of like a side project that was going to be complementary uh, our main product at the time there was a CRM tool and then what happened is that the community showed us so much possibility so much, so much opportunity that what you could do with the communication platform it was the community for instance that brought us our attention to bots and automation we, we were not even thinking about that on that point integration with like gc and other like video conferencing systems all about the community the flexibility of the permission layer it was the the department of defense in us which at that time they were just community because they were not paying anything, anything but they were using Rocket Chat. And mm-hmm. they asked us, oh, can we make the, your permission system flexible enough that we can use your system at the DOD? And I was like, wow, of course. So they did a pull request contributing the whole like, permission layer so it could actually be adapted, uh, flexible enough to be adapted by the DOD without them having to fork or maintain a fork. I think open source is a very strong, powerful thing to reach product market fit after like a certain momentum because the customer won't just tell you what they want. They will build what they want and contribute it back. That's interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about headquarters. And I think I think it's interesting from a multiple perspectives. Not only do you have great perspective as the CEO of a company, but also yeah. as a company that is helping other companies allow themselves to have distributed workforces. So for a lot of companies, the, the notion of what headquarters is, or, or at least how it's structured, is going to be different in the future. You know, some yes. are more extreme, like like Twitter, where they said we're fully remote. Others are going to have some sort of thing. But, but the notion of all of the power structure and leadership being in one building in one physical city, for a lot of companies, is a thing of the past. And so I'm curious what you think the role of headquarters is going forward, both at at Rocket Chat, as well as just in, in businesses in general. Yeah, I, I like to think that we were ahead of the curve on the way we build our headquarters because uh, I don't think our our headquarters is going to change yeah. because it was already so different from a regular headquarters. And I think more people, maybe they'll have a headquarters like ours. For some reason, I, I like the fully remote, the, the fully distributed but I also like the concept or the notion of having a home. I think if the headquarters becomes an expression of the values of the company, it doesn't need everybody to go there all the time. But it's one of the ways that the company express what it cares about, what are the things that it wants to happen and how I think people should interact. So our headquarters, when we built it, we, we, we didn't buy a, like a regular building and an office building. We could we, we were looking to places that it was a, like very regular, fancy offices in an office building. And then I was there and it was just like, it just didn't feel a place that I would like to go every day. So we actually bought a house, which was already a converted industry, like a big old factory that some cool architect turned into a house. Uh, so it have some weird, weird, like mismatched ceilings and stuff, but they have like a swimming pool, like uh, an outdoor big kitchen. Like we turned like the, the, the laundry of the kitchen, like in a, a big like meeting area and kitchen. There would be like a big barbecue place because in South Brazil here, we love doing barbecue as a as a socializing event. Almost every week, 
we will do a meal together. We'll cook a big barbecue. And then some vegetarians, so would actually barbecue not just the meat, but still you do a barbecue, so like a very coal. And, uh, and it's also a thing. And every time we invited investors to come over to meet the company, one of the things that they would get really impressed about and you know, be talking like for, for, for months after that was about coming coming down and having a barbecue with the whole team. Frequent, we would do that. And we also have something interesting that we kept a few of the bedroom in one of the areas as our like private Airbnb thing. So it's like anyone that wants to travel and meet your friends, if you're not from here, you're also invited. You can just come and then you have home to stay. And we have people that came to stay a month. Some people stay two months. We have one guy who's been here maybe for a year. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, and the people just come and stay and there's a way for them to meet their, their friends from, from other parts of the world. Our headquarters is more folks on the, trying to provide interaction and uh, building relationships than was designed for a place for people to just come and do, do the work. That's awesome. I, I want to highlight just one thing you said at the beginning of your answer or two that I think is great is headquarters is an expression of the values of the company. I, I think that's a fantastic concept. And, and I love the manifestation of that with the house headquarters that you just uh, described. Thank you. I like design and I, I like thinking about how people interact. That, that's maybe why I love Rocket Chat so much because I keep like simulating in my head how I think people will use the feature, how they're going to interact, how it's going to be the, the impact. The same way as a look of the UX of Rocket Chat itself. When I was designing the office, I was trying to imagine the experience of people going there and interacting. And I think those are very related because then it's aligned with our values of how we want people to interact. Let's maybe double down on that topic. Um, now you talk a lot about barbecue, private events, creating these serendipitous moments where people talk about those experiences three months down the road and so forth. How do you facilitate that in a virtual environment? You talked a bit about you're looking to build additional features uh, to facilitate those water cooler conversations. Uh, what are some of the learnings you've had throughout the pandemic that has led you to develop new features that allows for these type of interactions? So one of the things that I find I like the most in, in Rocket Chat that the team has built uh, that tries to create the serendipity is a bot called Coco. It's like a, the, the avatar is a little monkey and everybody loves Coco, even if like t-shirts and stuff about her. And he does like a few things. One is he looks at the calendars of people and try to see when people have some like spare times and then invite them for random connections. So people that you would never, probably not have a really good reason to have a business meeting because you're in different teams doing different stuff. But then Coco realized, okay, those people don't usually talk. Like, and then invite them all. Can I invite you guys to do a talk and suggest a topic for them to have a 15 minutes, 20 minutes water cooler conversation? A lot of people have met colleagues in the organization now that they wouldn't have uh, had a chance to meet or even create a connection and find things in common. And also we feed Coco with some very interesting questions that every week she goes around and asks people like, what is the meaning of success for you? Or who is the most famous person you ever met and why? And then it keeps like keeping those conversation starters. So she spends the week collecting it and then he published all the answers in a channel. And then everybody's usually waiting on the channel to see, okay, what, cool. uh, what are the others going to answer? And then there's always like an ongoing conversation every, every time, every week after the report comes, 
you can see like people dressed and 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 there's uh, getting to know yeah, Pulia. <laughs> yeah, people awesome. love it. Like people in the in company love it. That's Those so are cool. just like little snippets of trying to create some serendipity. Obviously, we try to do our virtual uh, happy hours that need to be very different hours. So sometimes we're doing a happy hour at like nine o'clock in the morning because we have people in <laughs> and uh, and some people stay awake until three in the, in the morning. So they can participate on the happy hour because they, they really like. And then we put all different kinds of games to play together, like all the way from Among Us to virtual soccer and stuff. So we, so we, we try to do those things. But all of those things still are not a full replacement for trying to get people to meet in person every now and then. So we do have a policy of trying to get everybody together at least once a year for a week or like 10 days. And so we call our rocket jet summit. And it's a different thing. If you then you, you go out, you go hiking together, we do kayaking together, even bunk jumping together and have meals and, and drinks, right? You, they say that if you share adrenaline with someone, like it, it, it helps to create a different kind of bonds. And it's very true. You, you can even see the change in the tone of the conversations on the channel between people who never met before. And after they went out for a drink together, like it's it's different. It, it feels like that is you put a lubrificant on the conversation. It's more fluid. Like people people are less defensive, and then it's it's it helps it helps a lot. So, and I know that a lot of companies like Automatic uh, has this policy of trying to get people to meet every year, right? Like GitLab has this policy too. I think they try to do even shorter, like every nine months or something like this. So I, I truly believe that at least once a year, your team should should be able to, to meet in person. That's really, really cool. Uh, did you then change sort of the, the names from water cooler conversation to banana tree kind of conversation? Or, uh, or yeah, no? I think they, they have a way of calling a banana tree. That's an interesting... <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> and... and Pretty bad joke. That's a typical Danish joke at the very least. Um, there's been research done that it takes about nine months for sort of relationships yeah, that's, that's why to disappear. Yeah, yeah. There is a like study. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Like I, I read on the book uh, the guys from Automatic uh, wrote. The thing is, is a year without pants, where they hire a journalist to write about his life working for Automatic for a year, and then he he explains the thing. So they had two policies that we incorporated into into our company, which is one having this. I mean, of get, trying to get everybody together and the other one was the company can sponsor uh, trips with, within a team to spend some time together because sometimes we're just going to wait for the whole company to get together the larger the organization grows the harder it is to get everybody together so you can say like oh if maybe this the marketing team they want that's what's going to happen like they want to meet in Croatia next week or the other so we're giving them some budget so all of them can go and then in trying to, to meet in Croatia, something like that, right? So this kind of uh, meetings is something that if the company can sponsor, they are very valuable. Very cool. What, one other thing you, you've been talking about multiple times is is just about core values. You talked about openness, transparency, and, and, and you know also how that's born in the open source sort of basis of the company. I think this is an interesting point in, in how you talked about how often your core values are what attracts employees from all over the world. And, and we believe that this is a, a hallmark of global class companies in that they're able to choose certain core values that are universal. 
They're not just specific to one country and one country's business culture. Talk a little bit more about how you thought of the whole universal nature of things or or a global footprint when you were building those core values. I heard someone say something that I, I really liked the other day, which was company values need to be discovered rather than created. It's not like one day the founder decides, okay, I want to build a company. Those are going to be the values. Artificially tries to impose those values. It's very unlikely that they will stick or have a resonance. Our core values, I didn't have them when I started. I didn't have the sense that they were not clear to me. And then on one of our summits, our people team decided to do an exercise to go around and ask what it were for them meant to be a rocketeer. Like what what are the, the, the core values that they would see in the company? So you broke into different teams and then have that way that people go changing from teams and taking some part of the conversation, this big make new groups and continue each team a leader presented the results and we tried to put them into clusters on a big screen and then name like the word it was like almost those like word clouds you know and then try to create the name that was appear more in each cluster and then it created that's how it came with our core values and then surprise surprise they were very similar to the core values that i see on open so that's why you end up like being a reflection but it wasn't something that i decided to do or that I had a say in decide what they were going to be. It was literally all the company together, like doing exploration exercise into the words that they felt when they thought about themselves as uh, rocketeers. And I think that book from Tony Shea, uh, The Delivering Happiness, right? The, from the story of Zappos. I think he has a similar story about the, the way they end up building it was once in a bar, someone asks, oh, so what it is to be to work at Zappos? And then each one in turn start to talk and then eventually they distilled it into the, the core values for Zappos. So I, I truly believe that it's an expression. That's why I think the founder needs to be authentic because he's going to attract, the early people he will attract to work with him are going to be the people that share those values. And then they multiply and hire the people that share their values. And then, so you don't even need to have them written at the beginning, but if you are authentic and you're true to your nature and you hire people that you like working with because you feel this connection, eventually, once you go and do this exploration phase, you'll discover the values behind what you created. So it's almost like being intentional, but not necessarily needing to be intentional. It's just being, being honest. There's almost an air of the agile methodology to that. It's not saying we're going to plan this and stick to this exactly, but we're going to yes. discover this in the process of us discovering our product market fit. <laughs> And, and who are customers. Exactly. Very much so. I'm going to hire people that it's almost like because I hired many people, some people didn't stick. They didn't get along with the company, didn't feel they were the place. And then if you have a strong culture, they're going to be kind of like expelled in some way and then they leave the company. And then on the end, you will find out like on a, almost like in an agile way, like some of your ex hires as an experiment will work, some work out, some will not work out, but you find what is the commonality. Okay, everybody that stay here it's because they appreciate and they value this. And then those became the, the core value of the company. Great. So let, let's switch over maybe to just focusing a bit on you, Gabriel. I know you're a very uh, a modest man, but we still do want to highlight you a bit here on the podcast. Can you talk a bit more about your background? What led you to found, obviously, RocketChat? What did you do prior that sort of helped you build the company? Yeah, it's it's always a journey, right? It's always uh, uh, people sometimes they see like the end of like what you're doing 
now, but uh, the, the journey how informs your decision-making process. And uh, I think a, a few things happened to me that shaped the way I see the world. The, the very first was something that influenced my, my decision to go into business school rather than computer science. Because I remember watching a documentary that was telling the story of uh, General Electric. And I didn't know until then that Thomas Edison was the founder of General Electric. So he was creating the lamp and the whole thing. And, and he created a company to commercialize and, and take the idea to have the impact in the world. You needed a company to do it. So that's why I, when I looked at that, I, I thought, okay, I already know how to program because my father had a, a software development company and I used to hang around with the developers and read their books. So I knew how to, to do software. And then I thought, okay, what I don't know how to do is if I do any software that is successful, I'm going to have to run a business for it to have a, a real impact. Then I decided to go into business administration at the university. And then I met, he became my best friend at the time. And then he was coming from a very similar situation. His father started a company that uh, became the Terra, one of the, the largest ISP in Europe. And I think they acquired Lycos at some point. So he said like, oh, okay, I, he learned how to program PHP because the, the creator of PHP used to to work for his father. <laughs> and then to so you're like, oh, yeah, I already know how to program. Running a business sounds a lot harder. There's people involved, right? <laughs> it's it always makes things more complex than 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 software. So we started a business together. Well, I were developing software. Taha became our greatest c- customer because his father opened the door for us to try to supply software to the internet. And then I had my first experience with two things. One was the open source world because we are using open source to do everything we until that point i never published anything as an open source when you're doing these projects for for teha they needed a little editor in the browser let's say your your google docs but a very much much simpler version at the time to work on on those old browsers so we built it and then they said okay let's put on SourceForge because this is not how we make money we're making money selling the, the whole system this is a component and it would be cool to give back since we have used so much open source. And then SourceForge, like, it wasn't as popular as GitHub. So we got like maybe 300,000 downloads. And that was a lot back in 2001 for an open source project on, on just a few weeks. And so suddenly we started to receive phone calls from people in Silicon Valley, startups around the world wanting to hire us to develop their platforms. And then I realized, okay, open source is more than just a one-way street. It gives you visibility. If you do something cool, you might not see a straight line to the return, but it might be a big circle, but you capture some of the value back like good things will you come to if you do if you do good things so i had this in my hand that i always wanted to do uh, back on open source because i understood it was more than just a one-way street it was a a model to interact with your community and and it was a two-way street anyway and also another experience is that Brazil was going always an up and down economy. And while we had a company that was only doing business in Brazil, anytime the economy had a downturn, like you like immediately hit by that. A lot of the economic and economical crises are more global, unfortunately. But at that point, there was a lot of times where Brazil would be going to bad time. And then the next country was doing like they were doing great or US was doing great or maybe Europe. And you are thinking, okay, why do, if I have one boat, if I sailing just in one sea, it's going to be a lot harder than if I have uh, things everywhere. So I decided when I got my degree that uh, I was going to take my company international. For some reason, I went to US. 
I stayed there for three months, but uh, I had like there was a personal thing that wanted to see the old world. So I wanted to live in Europe for a while. So I moved to UK, and that's how I started to open a, a branch of the business there and try to develop the business. It did well, but my partners decided that they wanted to double down on large customers back home. While I was, when you go abroad, sometimes you, you don't have the portfolio, you don't have like the, the you don't know the names or have the connections to go to the big guys. So you have to start from uh, small customers and, and build your way up. And my partners back in Brazil, they were like, they didn't have the patience to wait for us to build a name in Europe. So, and I said like, guys, I, I cannot see myself working for a company or building a company that folks in one market. And they said like, we don't want to be working for small companies. So we decided to split. And I had my first, not really wanted exit, <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was good. And it was, it was, it was a good exit. I, I left the company, had some money to do some stuff and be a consultant for a while. I went to work for Vodafone. I, after like a few gigs and trying different things, went to work for Vodafone. And there I, I learned something very interesting as well because they had so much resources. The budget to build the project that was involved was around a billion euros. Everything almost like gets more expensive just because they know that you have all this money, right? So you have to design the UI for a solution called IP-centrics. You like to have manage all your telephony systems in one UI. And I remember like, okay, I was comparing to my time in Brazil, I would hire some freelancers, like very skilled ones, but give them this pack, work with them remotely, and then maybe spend like a couple of thousand dollars or have like a whole UI, a UI design. And then when I got a Vodafone, they said like, oh no, you have to to hire a Sapien Nitro. And they're like, okay, but those guys charge thousand an hour. Like sometimes yeah. like, to, you know, and then so I remember like just the budget of the UI alone, I we were thinking like, I could have built this <laughs> in Brazil, just for the cost of the designer alone. And then you realize how much like big companies can become slow. And there's so many like uh, meetings to prove approval gates for the next step and, 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 and presentations. I, as a product manager, spending most of my 70, 80% of my time doing PowerPoint presentations for management and reporting. Uh, on evolution of the product and doing anything, like then actually doing the product. And then I thought, okay, that is how large corporations, even having a billion dollar on their disposal to innovate, they can be so slow that the small guys can just like go over them. So that was a good inspiring tip of knowledge that makes you you be brave enough to want to take the big guys uh, on the project. So Gabriel, you've, you've been touching on one of Klaus and my favorite topics as we've had conversations with international business executives like yourself, and that's formative experiences. So you were, you were just talking about formative experience around software development and the books that you read from you know the engineers and observing them from yeah. your dad's business. You talked about your formative experience with open source with Teha, right? And then you also yeah. talked about formative experience and seeing, you know, when you build a business that's just in one country, Brazil, you are very much affected by the ups and downs of the country. And then formative experience around the waste and bureaucracy and how slow things can be and how overspending can happen with Vodafone. So the answer to this question might be some of those pieces, but talk about your formative experiences as it relates to international. So did you have any experiences when you were younger or maybe along the way in any of those businesses where you really saw the opportunity in global business across the world. It, it seemed like part of that was your desire and you intentionally did that, but 
Where did that desire come from? I was inspired when my grandfather used to travel a lot when we were little, probably all my childhood. And then he, for instance, created the first shopping mall in the south of the country. It was the second shopping mall in Brazil because he got inspired by his travels to the U.S. And then the first time he saw a shopping mall there, a shopping center, he decided, okay, we need to have something like this back home. And then he came back to Brazil and built the first one. Uh, sorry, the second one in the country, the first one in the whole in the whole region. And it changed the shape of the city where he built and had a big impact. So I, I was always impressed about this story, about how when you travel and you see what's going on in other areas, you can get inspired to build great things where you're from. That's I think that's why I really wanted to go to Europe and see what was going on there. And I had two occasions that resulted in Rocket Chat. On the technological side, when, it, when I was making up my mind about starting my own business again, I started to go to all meetups I could attend about technology to see what what was going on? What are the new things? And uh, London was one of the places where the meetup uh, was really strong. So I got that's how I discovered like Node.js and MongoDB and like all those things because they were like starting the enthusiasts were building, uh, having those meetups. I, I even on the MongoDB, I was the very first one. MongoDB themselves started organizing meetup in London. I was the only one showing up for the first three, <laughs> and then I was like spending time with the engineers from MongoDB, and I ended up becoming such a good friend of them. They're actually the MongoDB guys who introduced me to NEA, where I got the seed round. Later, so you see how those sometimes you plant seeds of things you don't even know exactly what is going to be the the result. All the funding from Rocket Chat came from the relationship that they started to develop in MongoDB during the meetups while I was still living in London. So obviously, one thing took to another, took to another, but uh, it's an interesting snowball effect. One interesting thing for me was that even during at Vodafone, my project was very strange project. Because I was working for Vodafone Global, like the owner of all the operating companies, the local operators. And they had a strange relationship where I could influence the product launches and uh, what, what each country was doing, but I didn't have any power to mandate them to do anything. So I, I was a politician. I had budget to create things and spend money with Sapien and build a new uh, nice UI. And the thing is, if I build something cool enough, then I had to convince the countries to adopt whatever I was trying to build. And then trying to, sometimes I had to do some compromise, change the product to adapt to a local business. Like the Germans really like the whole secretary function. So uh, if you are an executive, you need to be able to route your, your all your calls to secretary and deroute or choose which people would bypass the secretaries. Very complex use case. I was like, but who uses this? Like at this at this age, like in the year 2000, surely your family have your mobile and everybody that's not your family going to give you your business number or something like this. It's easier than, than having a, a landline that you, you have throughout your secretary. Anyway, so you have to adapt, learn how to adapt to each market so it convince the team to launch. And then I even found some interesting things. For instance, that the Italians have launched the product that we were building years beforehand. They had the ideas there and that was the, the birth of the project was in, in Italy. So you could see that if you pay attention to what was going on in different countries, you could have come up with the product idea and design and concept much earlier than what Global then decided to do and all the other countries had to play catch up later on. So there was this about understanding that 
innovation happens everywhere. If you pay attention, it's going to be things going on in Italy, like the, in Portugal. And, and then once you got all those guys together to a product, we're able to build an even better version with the contribution from all those places. That really inspired me to understand different cultures who are going to look into problems in a different way, even a di different perspective. Even, even to develop the whole product, was interesting to see how the, the Germans went about it. The Germans really over-engineered the whole thing. I hate generalizations, right, or stereotypes, but it felt like so much of the stereotypes. Like the, the Germans were like over-engineering and then did, did a big contract with like a, a Siemens to develop it. And it was like, okay, it was the state of art engineering product. You went to talk to the Portuguese like guys. In, they were like, you know, this is easy enough. We'll, we'll build it ourselves. Hire a few guys and started to build and, and it got really good engineers and they, they, they trusted. And then the Brits, they were like, mm, that looks expensive. They look like who is doing the bad thing. And then it's like, oh, okay, we rent out of Portugal. And they just rented the Portugal servers. And then they got like the best of, of both worlds, like spend a little and, and then were able to optimize using using whatever they, they saw as the best solution out of the other countries. So it was, it was it was very, very telling. Funny enough, the guys involved in that project, they uh, some of them left Vodafone and started a company in Portugal. It's one of, one of the largest startups in Portugal, like one of the unicorns, TalkDesk. So they founded a company called TalkDesk. It was the same team. It was the, the guys who thought it was easy enough to build the system in-house so they were they were really genius seeing the different how diversity in culture and geography it's such a powerful thing for innovation that's a valuable insight people and i guess the the germans ingles are the ones that over engineers oh. things right <laughs> that's my my grandfather's side of the family so, <laughs> see, you could see his his way of thinking my father already was a first generation in brazil and he he lost he was still a german father and mother but grown up on a different culture he he had a little bit of both but it was very different than my grandfather my grandfather was like a not a robot in a sense but a very uh, routine based and and schedule and how he wanted to do things and i I didn't hear that part. I got the, I got the Portuguese and Spanish. I, I hate protein. We wanted to sort of switch a bit here, I guess, and turn over to maybe, again, talking a bit about you and some of your experiences. I guess in Silicon Valley, we talk, often talk about failures or mistakes are often the greatest learnings that you have as a business leader and as a founder when you build a company. So to date, what is your most valuable failure and why? I think the one I mentioned, for instance, having that exit, but being a forced exit, taught me a lot about aligning expectations right. as early as possible. The reason I end up parting ways with my partners, we didn't align the expectations probably about what we wanted for the company to be. And uh, I guess in a sense, in the beginning, we were starting university. <laughs> it's not like we knew right. much about what we wanted life, life to be. But even when I traveled, when I went to UK to, to open the business uh, uh, and have a plan, we, we didn't discuss enough about what the goal, what would be considered a failure of that endeavor. And then they will have to come back. And so it got to a point where we had such different expectations of what we wanted the company to be. 
and then happened again for me later on on, on another right. company and I, I realized okay a lot of times we think that your person is aligned with us and then we think okay I don't need to say this is implicit because they are a friend or they are someone you know you, and a lot of times people avoid sometimes because it's a hard conversation to talk about the bad situation or a crisis or because you're in a good moment like why do you want to you don't want to think about okay what's going to happen in the worst case scenario who wants to talk about this if everything is, is working good you need to do this both are thinking uh, thinking you as you guys have a coach or having a prenup that usually those things get discussed in Brazil, there's no such a thing. Even more taboo, like you're not going to be talking about how something ends. And I realized that it's a very healthy experience if you talk about how something will end. And I saw when my brother started his business that he sold like a, two weeks ago called Lofts. It's a multi-billion dollar real estate but anyway, he had three partners at one point when he was starting. Uh, he got good lawyers. So the good lawyers went and said, okay, what's going to happen if three of you don't like the fourth one? Or then it's not putting your way. And they created all sorts of mechanisms where by voting, there was like, this person uh, needs to leave. They're going to be bought out by this much. That's going to be the multiplier of the revenue or EBITDA or whatever. So they had formulas for everything. Not it's not like they never they never got into a fight, but every fight had boundaries. They knew what was going on and what would trigger. Uh, throughout the journey of the company, two of the founders left on the terms they were pre-established and and, and agreed on, and they're still all friends. And uh, yeah, and was very beneficial for the the sake and the health of the organization that they talked about all things in the beginning. So that's that was my big mistake. It was not talking about the divorce before the wedding with business partners. I mean, these are valuable inputs, and you're also speaking to the topic. At, at least it's a classical scenario, right? Uh, and is I think is the most often reason why you know companies fail is that founder alignment and the mm -hmm. fact that they're not truly have discovered the why they're building the company. And so I, I think you're speaking to a very, very important point right there. And that's these discussions early on is really going to impact the success of the business long-term because you can easily be in a situation where the company simply can't move further because the founders are simply not moving in the, in the, in the same direction. I've seen, I've, I have friends there, the founders of companies that had everything to become like right. billion dollar companies easily. And they failed because the partners got into like, terrible fights about the future and, and how to manage and the company just stopped. And then you, every, not just the company stopped, but everybody, like the team, the culture, mm -hmm. everything dies with that exactly. fight and your talent will run away and then the company just like fails. To that point, I guess a bit uh, about leadership and so forth. Um, maybe it would be interesting to learn a bit more about what do, what do you consider to be your greatest weakness as a leader? And how do you solve for that? Because you talked a bit about a bit earlier about you being very good on technical side of things in terms of building products and solution, but you lacked a bit the business skills. So you went and studied at business school, but now you've obviously developed Rocket to be a substantial business. There's still areas where maybe you're not as strong, you know, with or at. And how do you solve for those? You know, through obviously developing a company, through teams and hiring people and so forth. Yeah, I guess there are two 
types of maybe weakness, it can be solved in different ways. One of my weaknesses was on the commercial side. I was always like good at creating products, kind of like defining the operation of the business, but building a sales team was always a struggle for me. So the way that I fixed that part was it was easier to hire someone that I trusted with sales skills and building a sales team than trying to develop those those skills myself. I, I Beyond the degree that I, that I thought it was possible. So I, I, I can sell rocket chat because I'm passionate about it. The part that I am terrible is on negotiating the contract and all like getting uh, the deal to close. And uh, when you get into the customer trying to squeeze you, sometimes too soft. And then people say like, no, don't get Gabriel involved in the final negotiation. You're just like, <laughs> agree to, to anything. And that's a little bit related to maybe my other weakness. I, I always try to, to find where is the, the source of this, but empathy it can be a very strong kill. But also when I feel someone hurting, I it, it hurts myself. Sometimes you're going to give a bad feedback or he's going to have to sell something that is appointed to the other person. It's really hard for me. I have a hard time giving good news and making... Right. Uh, uh, uh. And the reason, I, the way I try to solve it is reasoning that, that I'm actually trying to do something good for that person, giving that feedback. That if I really like that person, that if I really care, uh, I have to go through this struggle, even if it, I will serve for some more... more sometimes more than the person who is listening to it, but I'm trying to help them to become better and to evolve. So I'm always trying to find my way of doing it. And I feel that it's easier for me if I try to get the person to reach a conclusion about the feedback that I was going to give rather than just giving saying is straight. So it's almost like give feedback with question. So do you think uh, this the, the Socratic method it, a little bit? And yeah, so I do you think this meeting was as good as it could be? Do you think the, all the customers' problems were understood beforehand, so you didn't have to make much? I don't know you try to make get the person to to, under, to understand it, but get to the conclusion by themselves. Because I have a problem if people get into a defensive mode, and then uh, I don't know I struggle a little bit then trying to break the defensive mode and making them feel if they scared. And so that's my my main main struggle. Awesome. Let's look a little bit more to to the future. So when it comes to global business today. You know, what, what does that yeah. mean to you? And, and then when you look as, as we're coming through and out of the pandemic, uh, how do you think international business is going to change? Global business uh, right now is not just selling a product globally. If I think you can create a true global business when you build a company that truly has global values. And if there's one thing that I've learned by Living in different cultures, like I lived in UK for a while, in Brazil, in the US, uh, I travel a lot about Europe and have those observations. So you start to learn that there are some values that you're raised with, that they are maybe core to humanity, if you can say, like they are shared values and something that you've learned that are very local and then once you start experiencing a variety of cultures you you learn how to distinguish them and the benefits of learning to distinguish them is that you can connect to people on a global level because you know what are the common values that everybody will connect with you and what are the things that you have to learn to respect because the people like people have those values but also not to waste too much time or, or care too much about 
even your your own like you start ditching some of your own values and think like why do I care about this like nobody else seems to care why like they, they don't make much sense then you become okay but those but other things are uh, uh, universal and then you can connect on the ones that really matter so I think global business are the business that would develop set of values that are more aligned with universal universal values. And so along those same lines that you've discovered your company core values, there's been an effort for them to be universal, but to a certain extent, and obviously it depends on the business, right? A physical product company is is different than a software company. When it comes to entering all these different countries and building a strong presence and momentum and traction, there's a level of localization that's needed. So how do you balance these core values and having them universalized with also the need to have localization? On the product level, we tried, uh, we had a problem in the beginning where people would try to make contributors contributions to the code base, trying to build those customizations for everything. Not just localizing the, the language, which is okay. Like you have a language file, then fine. Everybody have their language file. But even in Germany, they had like multiple language files because some some Germans would like a more professional sounding and have like choice of words. And the other would be more like, oh, they wanted to be more uh, laid back and, and they have a different wording for things just because there was different contexts. And it's like, do you need, need two German language files? And, and we accepted, okay. But uh, on the feature side, people were building different things as well. And got to a point where we realized if we want to be a truly international platform, we need to be able to create an abstraction layer where people can install those customizations on top without the product needing to be customized for each location by us. So that's where like, we build the marketplace and maps engine, all the infrastructure to empower the local communities, and then we found partners and found resellers that they could build the last mile sort of like localization, sometimes not even just for a region, but can be a localization for an industry, right? Uh, The financial sector, they wanted to do, they have some features, some things that are more related to banking and stuff that is not for everybody. So it's a kind of localization for a vertical. Uh, but as long as if you try to create a product and we were happy enough that we were able to create this layer of customization through apps and then allow people to install on top, I think we could we were able to achieve the best of both worlds. Still, still building, there's a lot of things to do, but as like the infrastructure is there. I think Atlassian did a good job with their marketplace and how powerful uh, you can build stuff on, on, on top of Atlassian. And also for them, I think it's more interesting uh, is if people build an app that then becomes so used and widely, like globally required, sometimes they went there and then bought the app and made part of the product. So it's even a way to allow innovation to happen organically in a controlled environment. And then if you're big enough, then you can go there and sometimes buy that kind of, I think the whole agile layer uh, of Jira it was a plugin developed by a third party that every I was using. I remember I was Jira at the time and I was using it. And at some point, Jira said, okay, this is gonna, it's called Greenhopper or something. It was incorporated into the main product. Uh, uh, so I think it, that's an interesting way to follow. Both the having the partners, the resellers, but allowing the product to be customized on a la- layer that is on top of what the, the company provides. 
Yeah, and, and that's we see that as a real hallmark for global class companies is those that are able to build their product to be localized and, and built in such a way that it's not so established that it only can work within the parameters of customer needs and regulations and other things of a single country, but really has that customization layer like you're talking about. So that's super important. And even the customization, that this customization uh, is something that attracts partners because you allow a level of service uh, for them to work uh, and then make, make have a profit on it as well. And then sometimes the local uh, uh, customer will be happier because their product, they get a product on the end that is even more suitable for their needs. They have a local partner that will, will do what they want and understand their requirements. So I think if you do it properly, it can be a very strong and powerful model. Fantastic. We're coming to the end of the podcast almost uh, because we want to end it with... That was quick. What, <laughs> that was quick, right? You, you talk a lot, which is great. <laughs> so, so we really you're leaning into oh, the conversation. Okay, I'll take this as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> it is a compliment for sure. So our, our last little sort of segment is called three pieces of advice. So imagine you're coming down from the elevator. You have to answer three questions very, very quickly. So um, this time, don't elaborate for too long, but okay. just come with like your quick answers, if you will. Right? The hot seat. The hot seat. The hot seat. Let's do it. The fire is burning uh, beneath your chair right now. So um, one, uh, what one piece of advice would you give to someone interested in building a career around international business? Travel a lot live in different places, learn, learn how about cultures so you can understand what are core values and what are like just the extra. Beautiful. What one piece of advice do you have for a business leader expanding a business to new markets? Hire people in those markets that understand like the, the local. If, if you haven't been there, uh, build a true global team for for those markets makes a world of difference now the final one and imagine you're your son that came through the door a bit earlier while we were on the call <laughs> what one piece of advice would you have for your younger self knocking in the door to obviously talk to his dad don't expect the others to know what is in your head and what is your goals and, and your values don't don't think that everything is implicit make sure that Every know everybody involves and knows what they're getting getting involved with. So transparency beyond the obvious. That's awesome. Well, Gabriel, thank you so much for for joining us. I mean, so many great things were discussed. I mean, like you just really summarized yourself with some of these hot seat answers. So yeah. the importance <laughs> of core values, building a global team. Uh, building a, a global product. And then also just some of the creative ways you talked about how you've brought your virtual team together with, with Coco uh, and, and other ways as well. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. We, we wish you the best of luck with the continuing to scale Rocket Chat. And uh, thank you for sharing your global business journey. Thanks so much for having me. I love to share this. And hopefully if I can influence anybody to go global and we have a more of a unified world, it's already a big win. Thank awesome. you, Gabriel. Thank you.